0: Well thanks so much you guys. Uh, My name is Vivek. I'm one of the pastors here at H2O uh, and it's a privilege to get to be teaching from God's word this morning. Uh, So one of the things that I feel like you should know about me is I am a proud girl dad. So I have two little girls. Uh, Our infant Naya is six months old. Here's I brought a photo of her to show you all. Um, that's like her favorite little bee that she like loves to hold on to Uh, and then I also have a toddler named Ari who's almost four years old now I asked if Ari I could show a photo of her and she said yes and so that's Ari over there and since Ari's almost four years old uh, she's able to have more complex conversations now and it's something that I really enjoy getting to do with her Uh, for instance With March being Women's History Month, we have some children's books we're reading with her uh, that talk about women who've worked to create equity between men and women. And so she's starting to see how uh, some people and even social structures treat women unfairly, and those have been hard but good conversations. And another topic we're having hard but good conversations about is Jesus. Who he is, what he said, what he did, what it means to follow him, And we've been exposing Ari to uh, Jesus through a a children's book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. I meant to bring it with me today. I forgot to bring it, but have any of you guys seen that book before? Okay, I see some hands up with folks who have kids especially. (laughs) So Ari enjoys that book, but I have to admit, there are some wild stories in it. I asked Ari if it was all right to share this story, and she said it was fine. But uh, as I'm reading, sometimes she'll interrupt me with questions. And she'll be like, Dada, how did Jesus heal that person? Or Dada, why did Jesus die? And after Jesus died and rose and then ascended to heaven, she was like, Dada, Jesus can fly? (laughs) And so as a pastor, you know, with over a decade of ministry experience and a seminary degree, I provide her with what I think are pretty solid answers to her questions. And Ari will sometimes just stare at me and be like, Dada, are you kidding me? And I love her response because, honestly, I have thoughts about that, about Jesus, like that also. There's things we read that Jesus did and said that internally. I'm like, are you kidding me? Did that really happen? Did Jesus really mean that when he said that? You know, we've been in the series called Believing Jesus because we want to look at the life and teachings of Jesus and consider, are we really living as if what Jesus said and did is true. And as we've gone through this series, maybe you're living as if everything we read about Jesus is true. Or maybe like my daughter, you notice Jesus says and does wild stuff, and you're not really sure what to do with it. So for instance, let me just recap one thing, just one thing from each chapter of Mark that Jesus has done so far. In Mark 1, Jesus heals a leper. Mark 2, he heals a paralytic. Mark 3, he preaches to thousands of people. Mark 4, he controls the weather. Mark 5, he casts out demons. Mark 6, he walks on water. Mark 7, he rebukes religious leaders and political leaders. And Mark 8, he feeds thousands of people. And then here are just some of the intense things Jesus says just in Mark 8 and Mark 9. So the chapter from last week and the chapter for this week. Jesus says... To save your life, you must lose it for the sake of the gospel. Jesus says to be first in the kingdom, you must become a servant of all. And Jesus says, if any part of you sins, cut it off. Now, all those passages have surrounding context. That's important, but even with the context, they're still pretty shocking. And so as you consider the things Jesus has said and done through Mark, at any point, have you realized it can be hard to believe Jesus? It can be really hard to believe Jesus. I don't know about you, but there have been moments like that for me, even as a Christian, even as a pastor, even as a dad who wants his kids to know and love and follow Jesus, I have questions and doubts about things Jesus did and said. And I'm sharing this with us in the hopes that there are folks here who can relate. And so if you've ever had doubts about God, I have a question for us to consider this morning. What do we do with the doubt that we feel? What do we do when we have trouble believing Jesus? And is there a healthy approach to our doubt? I think our passage in Mark 9 has something to say to us about that. So let's turn our attention there right now. Last week, Nate taught on Mark 8, and the climax was when Peter said he believed that Jesus is the Messiah. But then Jesus said that he'd be killed, and three days later, rise. And so Peter has some version of like a, are you kidding me, moment, and he rebukes Jesus. He's like, Jesus, you can't die. You're the Messiah. And so then Jesus rebukes Peter. And from that moment on, Jesus and his disciples begin this slow, methodical journey to Jerusalem. And the disciples think this journey is going to end with Jesus crowned as king. But Jesus knows it ends with him killed on a cross. So with that context in mind, let's start reading Mark 9, verses 1 to 4. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. The verses are also going to be on the screen for us. It says, Then Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. This moment is referred to as Jesus' transfiguration. It describes how Jesus suddenly transformed to display his glory. And it's such a powerful moment that Matthew, Luke, and Mark all talk about it. And in each account, right before the transfiguration, Jesus says what we see in Mark 9.1. He says that some disciples won't die until they see the kingdom come in power. And immediately after that verse, some disciples witnessed Jesus' transfiguration, which many believe is a fulfillment of what Jesus said because the transfiguration reveals the kingdom coming in power in several ways. First, Jesus and his clothes start radiating light. And then Moses and Elijah show up and they're talking to Jesus. And Moses lived 1,400 years earlier and is the one who brought God's law to the Jews. And Elijah lived 900 years earlier and is the one who represents all the Old Testament prophets. And so Moses and Elijah are the only two prophets in the Old Testament also who experienced God's glory in person on a mountain called Mount Sinai. You can read about those moments in Exodus 33 and 1 Kings 19 if you're interested. And so now in Mark 9, Moses and Elijah, the representatives of the law and the prophets are on a mountain again, seeing God's glory again but in a much fuller sense this time, in Jesus. And it's this amazing moment. Like, I wish we had more time to camp out on it and talk about it. And ironically, so did Peter. Because look at his response in Mark 9, verses 5 to 7. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he didn't know what to say, since they were terrified. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son listen to him now some people make fun of peter for what he says here but the focal point of this moment isn't what peter says it's what god says because right after peter a voice from a cloud bellows this is my beloved son listen to him and this isn't the first time in mark that we hear the voice of god affirm jesus right look what god said at Jesus' baptism in mark 1 verse 11 it says a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son With you, I'm well pleased. You know, if you're following along in your Bible, go ahead and keep a finger on Mark 1. We're going to go back to it often today because Mark 9 repeatedly echoes Mark 1 as a way to double down on the things that were already shared with us back in Mark 1. And one of the things Mark is doubling down on here is that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, none of us here have seen anything as amazing as this moment in Mark 9. But I think some of us have had moments where we've been amazed by God, right? Maybe it was a miraculous moment, or maybe like an everyday moment, like a sunrise or a starry night. But have you been amazed by God? I know for me, one way I've been amazed by God is through keeping track of prayers. So we have this mason jar at home, and when I pray for something and God provides for it, I try to write it down and put in the jar. I brought a photo of that jar, too. I meant to empty it out at the start of 2023. I still need to do that, uh, but I have a shoebox somewhere at our house, and it has years of answered post-it note prayers on it. in it, and it's cool to look through the prayers that God has provided for, and some are kind of trivial. You know, I lost my keys, and I prayed that I'd find them, and then I found my keys, but there are others like praying for someone to be healed, and then they're healed, And I know any of those moments could seem like a coincidence to some people. Honestly, I even have moments where an answered prayer seems like a coincidence. But over the weeks and months and years of watching these post-it notes pile up, it's humbling to see how often I've asked for help and how often God has provided. Like it's pretty amazing to me. And so that's an example of how I've been amazed by God. But what about you? Do you have moments, big or small, where you think God has moved? I know we started this sermon talking about doubt. And so it might seem odd that we're talking about being amazed by God right now. But I think it's important to recognize that those who doubt can also be amazed by God, right? We see that in Mark's gospel all the time. Take Peter, for example. In Mark 8, he doubts what Jesus says about being the Messiah. And then in Mark 9, he's amazed at the transfiguration. And then soon after that, he starts doubting Jesus again. And I'm not saying we should all be like Peter. All I'm trying to say is you can be amazed by God and still have doubts about God. Because look what happens right after this moment. Let's read Mark 9, verses 8 to 13. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restore all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him just as it's written about him. It's kind of ironic, right? God just said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And right away, the disciples doubt Jesus saying that he's going to die. And verses 11 to 13, they might seem kind of random at first, but it's actually connected to the disciples' doubts. The disciples ask Jesus why Elijah is supposed to come before the Messiah. And what they're referencing are the last words of the Old Testament. So look what God says there in Malachi 4, verses 4 to 5. It says, Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So the disciples' question isn't random at all. After seeing Moses and Elijah, they remember this Malachi passage about the Messiah. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, where's Elijah? And Jesus' response is pretty interesting. Jesus affirms that Elijah is going to come on the day of the Lord, but then he shifts their attention. He shifts it to a different prophet and a different prophecy. He alludes to what Isaiah said about the Messiah, suffering. He's alluding to Isaiah 53. Look at verse 5 with me. It says this about the Messiah. It says, he was pierced because of our rebellion crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we were healed by his wounds. So the disciples in some sense are asking Jesus, how can you be the Messiah if Elijah hasn't come? And Jesus says, here's a better question. How can I be the Messiah unless I suffer and die for the sins of all? The disciples are wondering about the Messiah's glory in Malachi, but Jesus redirects them to the Messiah's suffering in isaiah because the, before the day of the lord comes the lord must suffer and die and then jesus throws in this nugget about elijah in verse 13 he says elijah the messenger who'd prepare the way for the lord has already come and the disciples didn't realize it so go back to mark 1 with me again because here's another moment where mark 9 connects to mark 1 in mark 1 we met the messenger who came to make way for the lord Mark 1, verses 2 to 4. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He'll prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John the Baptist, who dressed and ate and talked like Elijah, was the messenger who'd already come and paved the way for Jesus. Jesus. And so Jesus and his disciples, they're talking about these things as they come down this mountain, and here's what happens next. Mark 9, verses 14 to 19. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. He asked, What are you arguing with them about? Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So Jesus finds his disciples squabbling with religious leaders amidst this large crowd, and he asks them what's going on, and a father cries out, begging for help for his son who's tormented by this evil spirit. And as disturbing as it is for us to read about this boy, it's also disturbing to read Jesus' response in verse 19, right? He calls them an unbelieving generation, and he's tired of putting up with them. It's one of Jesus' harsher responses, right? Not just to the religious leaders, but to the disciples and the crowd and even the dad. And moments where jesus gets frustrated like this can feel a little bit unsettling right moments like mark 8 when jesus rebuked peter and told him get behind me satan or in mark 11 when jesus curses and kills a fig tree or john 2 when jesus flips tables and uses a whip to drive people out of a temple it sometimes makes us wonder what's going on here with jesus but it's interesting Each of those moments has a couple of things in common. One, they're moments where people misunderstand Jesus and his kingdom. But two, they all happen a week or two before Jesus is about to be killed. And so in light of those things, it may not make us feel any less uncomfortable, but maybe it makes a little bit more sense why Jesus is so frustrated. He spent about three years with these people, casting out demons, healing the sick, teaching about the kingdom of God. And yet he's constantly misunderstood, criticized, and doubted by the people who are around him. And these are the very people he'd go die for in just a few days. And so I think two things can be true of Jesus here. Yes, Jesus is full of grace and compassion, And yes, Jesus is full of righteous anger and gets frustrated. Both are true, and we're actually going to see both in this passage as we read along. So read what happens next, Mark 9, verses 20 to 22. So they brought the boy with him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has it been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said. Many times it's thrown him into the fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So Jesus engages the boy's father, and the father says, If if you can do anything, please help us. And here's another moment from Mark 9 that harkens back to Mark 1. Because in Mark 1, we also see a person wonder if Jesus would heal them. Look at Mark 1, verse 40. It says, a man with leprosy came to him on his knees and begged him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So even after eight amazing, fast-paced, miracle-laden chapters where Jesus has proven again and again that he's not only willing, but he's able to heal, this father and many others still have doubts about Jesus. And Jesus seems a bit put off by that. Look what he says in Mark 9, verses 23 to 24. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. What a powerful statement from the father. Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Up to this point in Mark, the Pharisees, the crowd, the religious People, the disciples have all doubted Jesus. But this Father is the only person to confess their doubt and ask for help. And it serves as a great model for us. Think of our question from earlier today What do we do with our doubt? What do we do with our doubt? I think we often view faith and doubt as binary things that don't coexist. And yet, as Christians, we're often a mixture of both. In fact, I think if we're honest, I think we all have doubts about Jesus. We may believe Jesus is the Messiah, but doubt some things he did in Scripture. We may believe all of Scripture, but find it hard to live out the things that, God, that Jesus calls us to live out in Scripture. We may be followers of Jesus, but question why he allows certain things to happen in our life and in the lives of other people. We're often a mixture of belief and unbelief, just like the Father in this passage. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. A Barnes study done in 2017 polled over 1,000 people, and they found that 95% of theologically conservative Christians said they grew in their faith as they wrestled with their doubts. And of people who didn't identify as theologically conservative, over 50% said they grew in their faith as they engage with their doubts, while only 12% said they lost their faith after engaging with their doubts. So it seems as though a great way to deal with our doubt is to be honest about it. And so if you have doubts, if you're struggling to believe something Jesus has called us to, I want to encourage you to do what the Father does in this passage. Share your doubts and ask God for help. Share your doubts and ask God for help because as we do that, I think it not only honors God, but it's an avenue through which God can move. Look what happens next in Mark. Look at Mark 9, verses 25 to 29. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him and stood him and he stood up. After he'd gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. You know, I think some of us are afraid our doubts and questions will push God away somehow. But we don't see that here, right? Jesus doesn't rebuke the dad and get angry at the dad for his unbelief. Rather, he helps the dad. Jesus continues to be who he always is. Jesus is steadfast and compassionate and powerful and faithful to us. So whether you're full of faith or lacking in faith this morning, please know that Jesus is faithful even when we lack faith in him. Jesus is faithful even when we lack faith in him. But there's something really curious about this passage that we just read. Look at verse 26 with me. We tend to jump from Jesus rebuking the spirit to the boy being healed. But pause at verse 26 here. It says the boy looked like a corpse. People thought he died. People thought Jesus failed, right? Why did that happen like that? Was the evil spirit especially powerful than other demons Jesus cast out? Or maybe Jesus just wanted to mess with people? Like as I studied out this passage, I don't think that's what's going on here at all. If you've noticed, Jesus has talked a lot more about his death the past couple of chapters, right? And this boy's death and resurrection is meant to foreshadow Jesus' death and resurrection. And that might sound like a stretch at first, but there are several reasons to think that. For instance, we see this boy inflicted by an evil spirit, and no matter how hard people try, they're helpless to do anything about it. And when we consider humanity, the Bible talks about how we're all inflicted, not by an evil spirit, but by sin. Like Romans 3 says, we've all sinned, and like Romans 6 says, all who've sinned die. And so no matter how hard people try, we can't escape sin and death. But then, Jesus shows up. And just as Jesus came to defeat this evil spirit, Jesus came to defeat sin and death. But evil seems to win. The boy dies, and it seems like Jesus failed. Just like Jesus dies, and it seemed like he failed. But what seemed like failure was actually for God's glory. Because just as the boy rose from the dead, Jesus rose from the dead. And look back at Mark 9 with me. In verse 25, Jesus rebukes the spirit and says, come out of him and never enter him again. You know, Jesus doesn't say that to any other demon or spirit that he casts out. Why? He's emphasizing that his victory over the evil spirit is permanent, just as his victory over sin and death is permanent. And furthermore, look at Mark 9, verses 28 to 29 with me. The disciples asked Jesus, why couldn't we cast out the spirit? And Jesus says this, this kind can only be cast out through prayer. Some translations actually say prayer and fasting. And there's debate about what Jesus meant by this. Some people think Jesus is saying that, you know, if the disciples just prayed and fasted enough, they could have cast out this evil spirit. But I think the key to unlocking what Jesus is saying here is actually found back in Mark 1. Because in Mark 1, after we see John baptize Jesus and God speak over Jesus, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus to the wilderness. And what did Jesus do in the wilderness for 40 days? He prayed and he fasted as a way to be fortified as the Messiah. And so I don't think the disciples could have prayed and fasted enough to drive out this spirit I think Jesus is saying that only he could defeat the evil spirit. Just like only he could defeat sin and death. And if all that wasn't enough, here's a kicker. Look at Mark 9, verses 12 to 14 again. Jesus spoke about how the Messiah must suffer and be rejected. And then read the verses right after this demon-possessed boy. Mark 9, verses 30 to 32. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he didn't want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They'll kill him, and after he's killed, he'll rise three days later. But they didn't understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. In both parts, Jesus is referring to his death and resurrection. And in between these quotes from Jesus, is this odd story of a boy, seemingly dying and resurrecting. Mark does this sort of thing constantly in his gospel. He makes a point, uses a story to illustrate that point, and then repeats his point. It's almost like a theological sandwich. Point, story, point. And within Mark 9, we see Jesus point out twice that he will die. And sandwiched between his statements is a story showing what Jesus' death and resurrection would kind of be like. And so this story of the demon-possessed boy is not a random filler story. It's a visual for how Jesus will unexpectedly die. And his death may seem like a failure at first. But Jesus did not fail. Jesus was not a helpful vi- helpless victim. In fact, it's the opposite. It was through his death that he gained victory over sin and death. And all who believe in Jesus to rescue them from sin and death get to share in that victory with him. And so if Jesus can handle sin and death, then I'm persuaded that he can handle pretty much anything, including our doubts, including our questions, including whatever comes up as we seek to follow him. And so our challenge or encouragement for this week is simply this. Pray this prayer as you have questions and doubts come up. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. If you're a follower of Jesus, but there are areas of your life you're having trouble trusting Jesus with, let this prayer just be a comforting reminder to bring your doubts to him and ask for help. As many of you know, our theme for the year is that Jesus is our cornerstone. He's the one we want to build our life on. And a way to keep building our lives on Jesus is to confess and ask help from him again and again. If you're not a follower of Jesus, please consider what you don't believe about Jesus. And if you're willing, ask him for help. But as a community, let's pray this prayer together this week. And if there are people you feel safe to share your doubts with, that could be a helpful way to process some of the things that you're engaging with. Let's pray. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.